0: Or text Wondery Pod to 500-500.
1: We all have busy lives these days, and we don't want to waste a day recovering after a night out. That's why Zbiotics is the answer we've all been looking for. Their probiotic was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Pre-alcohol produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. This is a proactive solution that wards off feeling miserable the next day instead of a reactive approach like drinking electrolytes or eating greasy food. Enhance your mornings. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? And his name is Major. Oh! Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett from the nation's capital. Major,
2: fantastic.
1: It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington correspondent. Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Major Garrett.
3: Major, that's nonsense, and you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? <laughs> the answer is yes.
4: Welcome to the very best part of our broadcast week in a major role reversal. Major Garrett is the guest this week on The Takeout, along with David Becker to talk about their new book, Upholding Democracy in the Age of the Big Lie. The main title is The Big Truth. To interview Major and David, I'm Scott McFarland, CBS News Congressional Correspondent. Also known as the Takeout Podcast biggest fan. <laughs> let's, let's reverse roles even more. Let's go with David first for the first question. The theme of this book, what I find most compelling, is that it's a story of duality, that the 2020 election was this unbridled success story and then a major historic risk and failure. Why is that true?
5: Well, I mean, I think it's one of the reasons that Major and I felt like we needed to write this book. Um, the... The simple fact, when you actually look at the facts of the 2020 election, everyone remembers we're in the middle of a global pandemic. Election officials are planning this to administer this election. And what's remarkable about that is they can't do this socially distant. They are in offices together. They are in rooms together. They're getting sick. Yeah, they're getting sick. Um, And they also know that turnout is likely to break all records, which, in fact, it did. And despite all of that, think about how often we heard about lines on Election Day, how we processed all these new rules that that uh, like allowing for mail balloting, for instance. There were many places that had brand new machines that they had never used for a presidential election. The entire state of Georgia, Philadelphia County, uh, Pennsylvania, new machines that had been planned even before the pandemic that they were going to be using. They managed all of this and the poll worker shortage that came about from the pandemic remarkably well. And the work that they did withstood scrutiny like we've never seen. Over 60 courts reviewed the election and it confirmed the results. And we should be throwing them a parade and giving them a little break. And instead they've suffered about two years now of abuse, harassment, threats, including death threats. And uh, this dichotomy between the incredible success is probably the greatest triumph of American democracy in our history. And the lies that have led tens of millions of voters to believe the opposite um, really struck us. It's something we're still dealing with to this day. It's a bulletproof election, but they're taking shots at it anyhow.
2: And look, I know in the audience, Scott, people will say, well, why are you calling it a triumph of democracy? I'm not happy that Biden won. Of course you're not. If you're a Trump supporter or Republican and we don't ask of you... And democracy doesn't ask of you to be happy with the result. What democracy asks of you is that you participate and that when the process that plays out before you, legally and verifiably, is, reaches a conclusion, you accept it, even though you're unhappy. So to call it a triumph of democracy is a, a triumph of the process by which we explain ourselves democratically to one another. And millions of Americans locked arms and did that to the best of their ability to create this election under the most difficult circumstances since the Civil War. When I was growing up, that was the kind of achievement Americans universally celebrated as something that was all the things we love best about our country, ingenious, inventive, collaborative. No roadmap, yet we figured out a way. We didn't throw up our hands and say, we can't do this. We were all together can do about accomplishing this. Former President Trump got millions of votes that he didn't even expect to get. Outdid every previous Republican in his position, but still came up short. That's a fact. Lots of Republicans exceeded expectations and won in state legislative races and in congressional races. They won legitimately. Those things are all true. And yet, some portion of our country thinks a crime was committed. A crime wasn't committed. And we have to get to a point where that is true. It is true. That point has already been established, but accepted as truth. And that's one of the reasons we wrote the book. One of the things I think you know quite well
4: in this, Major, is that this was a contagion. This wasn't episodic or localized to a certain state or a certain precinct. How does that spread so fast? How does it spread so wide? Can a singular American leader really do something like that?
2: The answer is yes. A singular American leader can do that. And I was covering the Trump campaign in 2015 and 2016, and I remember we all sort of took a breath in when at one of the debates he said he wasn't sure if he'd accept the results of the 2016 election. Of course he did, because he won. And then he started casting doubt on the 2020 election long before it began saying the only way he could lose was if it was rigged. Planting that seed into terrain politically that was already fertile, made fertile by a couple of things. We talk about this in the book. And I understand, because I've been close to the Trump movement for the better part of six years, I understand the frustration Trump voters feel. They feel he was never given a fair shot once he became president. There was no honeymoon period. There was no celebration of this kind of miraculous victory he achieved in 2016. They feel very embittered about the Russia investigation and its origins, and for, in certain respects, proper reasons. I think the media is always hassling him. They think he never gets a fair shot. But inside and, the movement, has there been a radicalization even there in, sure, over those six yes, years? People have taken that frustration and metastasized it into something much worse and much more violent in certain respects. And they also think that they're frustrated with COVID rules and the COVID rules were oppressive and because election rules were changed as a result of COVID, they must be oppressive, therefore they must be wrong, therefore they're hesitant or resistant or just full out will not accept the results because they're shadowed in their mind by COVID. All those things are part of it, but none of them by themselves establish the thing they say exists, which is evidence of fraud because there isn't any. You can be aggrieved but you can't continue to slander something baselessly and that's
5: where we're at. David? Yeah, I would just want to add that the losing presidential candidate did this but he also had a lot of help from uh, an ecosystem of grifters that have surrounded him that are uh, targeting this, those who are sincerely disappointed by the outcome of the election. As, as Major said, I mean, we, we have a lot of sympathy and empathy for people who are disappointed in the outcome. That's something that we've all experienced. Everyone's experienced an electoral disappointment in the last decade. But there are what's kind of unique about this election is the losing candidate and the grifters that surround him have targeted those who are sincerely disappointed by the outcome for an ongoing grift. And it's not just happening in Georgia and Arizona and Wisconsin. It's happening in California and Florida and Texas and states that were won by wide margins by either candidate. And it, um, the impact, especially on the election officials, the professionals who run elections has been, um, devastating.
4: David Becker, in addition to being the author of this book, along with Major, is also the executive director of the Center for Election Innovation and Research and formerly with the Department of Justice, um, arguing on behalf of voting rights. So let's just put the foundation out there, David. Is there any historical precedent for this level of election denialism,
5: this widespread or this severe? Um, Nothing comes close to this. I mean, I get asked a lot about what election officials are going through right now and i get asked is this worse than it's ever been and i always say it's never been um election officials in particular these are hard-working um civil servants whose best case scenario is anonymity they're you know they're, they're hoping that they do a good enough job that on the wednesday after an election no one is talking about the election anymore because everything was so smooth um And they have found themselves, we're about 700 days after the November 2020 election, and as Major alluded, the election denialism, the delegitimization of the process was happening since well before that. They find themselves the target of attacks. Um, It's this kind of delegitimization of the processes by which we govern ourselves. I've never seen it in 25 years of working in in the voting space, in the election space, and looking at history... I mean, you'd have to go back into the 1800s to find anything that's even remotely close to this. I think uh, we take a pause there. I want to
4: drill down, though, into the phrase you used earlier, Civil War, Major, because it comes up in your book, comes up pretty early in your book, and it's not a phrase you use lightly. I want to talk about that in a moment. First, let's take a break, and I'll be in the unique position of making sure Major gets his food this week. (laughs) (laughs) This is the Takeout (laughs) (laughs) Podcast. Stand by.
0: high-quality organic dairy ethically sourced from small organic family farms. To find Organic Valley Dairy near you, visit ov.coop. That's ov.coop.
1: From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome
4: back to The Takeout Podcast. I'm Scott McFarlane, in for Major Garrett, because today our guest is Major Garrett. And his is co-author David Becker, authors of The Big Truth, Upholding Democracy in the Age of the Big Lie. We're at the Dubliner Restaurant on Capitol Hill, which, unique piece of trivia, 2009 during the first Obama inauguration. The unmovable part of the crowd that was so enormous This was the perimeter, the Dubliners, where they couldn't get past Mm -hmm. on their way to the west front of the U.S. Capitol. So it's a landmark location for many different reasons. You mentioned in this book uh, a phrase that comes up a lot in the January 6th criminal prosecutions, civil war. There are a number of defendants who were accused of trying to invoke or champion the idea of civil war ahead of January 6th. Major, tell us how you employ the phrase in the big truth and why you think it's powerful.
2: So we open the book with what we regard as a warning to everyone in this country who believes in the continuation of the American experiment as we all know it, as we all enjoy it, as we all, I hope, believe in the furtherance of. And the first chapter I want to emphasize is speculative fiction. It's not a prediction, but it's something that we believe can easily be imagined based on the trajectory you're already on in terms of where the country is, what its conversation is, and what likely conflicts could occur in the upcoming midterm elections over a disputed set of election results. And I don't want to give too much of it away, but what we basically say is a dispute in one state could be so profound that it could lead to questions within the Democratic House leadership about the legitimacy of that state's delegation. And it's a large state in question. And those profound questions about the methods of voting and what happened in that particular state in the midterm elections can lead to tremendous pressure. The Democratic House leadership, sufficient to lead Speaker of the, the House, Nancy Pelosi, to decide, you know what, I'm not going to seat that entire state delegation, Republican and Democrats. And as our speculative fiction opening chapter reveals, that turns out because it's a very closely drawn midterm election to be really important, as a matter of fact, determinative in majority control. Then that state says, wait a minute, we don't think that's fair. Guess what? We're no longer gonna participate in the voluntary sending of revenue to the federal government. And if you come here to collect it, there'll be trouble. Like-minded states sympathetic to that particular state, join them. States aligned with the Speaker of the House then begin to not recognize the rights of those states who are rebelling on paper from this requirement to provide federal revenue. And gradually, as the chapter continues, an unwinding of the core sense of a United States, of a union, begins to unravel. It happens all on paper with speeches and pronouncements and then refusal to comply. There are no bullets, there are no bayonets, there are no ramparts charged, there's no dead laying on the the roadway, but we unravel before our very eyes and as our quickly. chapter describes it it happened efficiently yes
4: yeah not over decades but over no pretty days. rapidly
2: pretty rapidly because we say that the pres- the precedents for that already exist there are boycott movements already right now between states over abortion and other things there are questions about moving migrants from one state to another depositing problems in another state because we disagree with their approach to immigration so already there are strands of this sentiment existing in america we're not amplifying anything. We're just taking them to what we th- regard fearfully as a place where we might be heading. A logical path. A logical path. Right. We, and when we write it in the, in the terminology of this doesn't have to happen, this doesn't have to be our future, but look into this. If this future troubles you, help this country pull back from this abyss. It's a
4: fictionalized a quasi fictionalized scenario in a decentralized midterm election where everything seems to be happening in its own different spot, its own state or its own congressional district. There isn't that big, broad, everybody on the same ballot, nationalized election in a midterm seems real possible in 2024 where you do have one unifying candidates on the same ballot. Is that our trajectory for 2024,
5: that we are at grave risk or graver risk of that happening? I, I think it depends on what happens in 2022 largely and how much we're able to uh, claw back from the precipice. The 2022 actually does worry me because there are all these individual races and it is very decentralized, but we know that the margins to control the United States House and the United States Senate are going to be very narrow. And I think it's also fair to say this is something I've been talking to the media quite a bit about. The likelihood that we know anything on election night is virtually zero. It's going to take a long time because these margins are going to be very narrow because several states take a long time to count ballots because predominantly Republican legislatures have not permitted states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin to begin pre-processing mail ballots, and there will still be a lot of them in, in advance. California, though, California takes weeks to count ballots anyway, and we've got all new congressional districts. So we're going to have a lot of races that, def- that, that are going to be narrow and could define the outcome of the majorities in both houses. Is that vacuum dangerous, that time? Very. Why so? That's exactly—I that, think that's the point that we were talking about. I'm not that worried that an election denier who is in power might— anoint the loser as a winner. There's a lot of reasons thanks to paper ballots, thanks to audits, thanks to the transparency of the process, thanks to the courts, thanks to campaigns having teams of lawyers that are going to be watching this. And that legal that's,
2: rights to assert yeah. that the courts will recognize.
5: I think that's going to be very difficult. But you're going to have a period of time of weeks where we might not know who actually is in control of various houses, where candidates who have been already stoking the fires and saying elections are rigged unless I win, will uh, be behind and stoking that kind of division and anger. And that is an environment that is ripe for political violence. So if I'm a contrarian
4: major and I say, okay, so there's this secretary of state candidate in this state who denies the 2020 election results, and he or she will be put in charge of administering elections in 2024. He or she can only work under such a narrow field to try to change our results if we elect so-and-so so-and-so is going to be the winner no matter who the secretary of state is is the contrarian
2: right or is there a graver risk than we see i'll defer to david on this because this is his real area of expertise and the reason i wanted to partner with him on this book because he knows and has lived and has been immersed in all these procedures and laws for the better part of 25 years what i will say is at the margins that's true what you just said—the contrarian point of view—is secretaries of state cannot just anoint or choose a victor. There are legal challenges that someone who says, "No, the ballots say this; you say that." My, I'm going to take my ballot evidence to court, and I'm going to prevail. It may take me a while, but I'm going to prevail. The more systematic efforts that a secretary of state who is an election denier might take is to limit resources, disenfranchise. Well, limit resources to election officials so they don't have the things that they need to administer a quality and coherent election process. They can gum up the works before election day in ways that make that precinct or that set of precincts job harder to carry out a good election. And those are the kind of things that can worsen the voter experience, make things unduly confused and create an atmosphere of chaos that somewhat might have a better chance of exploiting.
5: Yeah, Major's exactly right, and he's become quite the expert in his own right over the course of the past few years. Um, One of the jobs of a secretary of state or a chief election official at the state level is to support election officials at the local level. Those are the people who are actually running the elections, to provide guidance, to clarify things that might be unclear. um, And someone who believes it's their job to put their thumb on the scale for their candidate, might intentionally reduce those guardrails, might create some confusion ahead of time, might fail to support election officials, might support areas that he thinks or she thinks might have more of his voters or her voters than others. That could create a problem going into the election. It could create problems on election day. It could create problems in the counting process. Now, the campaigns will be on top of this, and they'll watch this very closely. But that doesn't mean it's not a risk. And then the additional risk that that really concerns us is that this is likely to stoke a lot of anger being driven by whichever candidate is perceived to be behind at any given point in time. And distrust in their vote. Exactly. Which is disenfranchised.
4: Exactly.
2: uh, Just just one example. There are some on the election denier side who say quite publicly we should get rid of vote-counting machines. The machines. Trust me, machines in many walks of life do things that are difficult and time-consuming quite efficiently, and they do them better than humans. That's why we defer to them in many respects. And this is a classic case that human beings counting ballots is slow, prone to error, and prone to manipulation. All the things we want to guard against. Machines have no investment in that at all. As long as they, as, long, as long you have paper ballots to back them up, you can prove it. And guess what we do? And they're dis- disconnected
4: from the Internet as they Absolutely do their work. Absolutely disconnected. On America's greatest radio stations and on Sirius XM 124, the POTUS channel, you're listening to The Takeout Podcast. I'm Scott McFarland For Major Garrett, back in a moment.
6: Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news.
1: From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major
4: Garrett. You're listening to The Takeout Podcast. Major Garrett's in the guest chair today, along with David Becker, co authors of The Big Truth Upholding Democracy in the Age of the Big Lie. We're talking about election integrity and the risk to election integrity. David, you make the argument, both through the book and through your advocacy for the book, that the people who are arguing for more election integrity might be dismantling the infrastructure of
5: election integrity. What do you mean by that? So one of the things that I think everyone should understand is over the last 20 years in particularly, we've reached the pinnacle of election professionalism in in the election administration space. We all remember Florida 2000. There were legitimate issues with that election, punch card ballots, uh, butterfly ballots, a very, very narrow margin. It had to be litigated all the way to the Supreme Court. But since then, we've had more money flow to election administrators. We've had more productive engagement from people, uh, organizations like the uh, Presidential Commission on Election Administration, which President Obama started in 2013, co-chaired by his former White House counsel, Bob Bauer, and former Romney and W. Bush campaign counsel, Ben Ginsberg, who I work very closely with. And um, that led to many good consensus recommendations. And what many people might not realize is as the parties and campaigns kind of fight out election process to try to get a leg up on each other, most of the professionals in the election administration agree on certain things with regard to election administrations. They agree that we should spread out more voting into mail and early voting because it takes the pressure off election day and reduces lines. They agree that when voters vote by mail, it's good to have drop boxes available because you take out the postal service middleman, it goes right to election officials. They agree that States should use tools like the Electronic Registration Information Center, which is a consortium to help them keep their voter lists up to date. They agree that voting machines are better at calculating or tabulating votes, but they need paper ballots and they need audits. Those are all things that have spread over all over all the states of the last 20 years and yet we now see election deniers calling for things like getting rid of election drop boxes instead forcing people to use mailboxes in the postal service when they could be delivering ballots directly to election officials things like requiring hand counts of ballots you literally have the same people saying why is it taking so long to count my ballot but i want to move to hand counts of ballots our ballots are very complex, many pages long. That would take weeks, if not months, to count them. Machines do that very well, but then we need the paper and the audits, the audits of those paper ballots, which we have. Every battleground state, 95% of people in the United States vote on paper. Almost all of the states conduct audits, and that number is growing, and those audits are getting better. Speaking with David Becker and Major Garrett on the Takeout podcast, I'm Scott
4: McFarland in the host chair so that we can interview Major. One um, of the things you argue in this book, or at least illustrate in this book, is that if one side is going to deny elections or challenge elections, they're not going to be alone in that after a while. The other side's going to jump in and start doing that too.
2: Right. So I said this when David and I were on Face the Nation. Politics, like the National Football League, is a copycat league. Things that work for one side will be embraced and adopted by the other. And we argue, I hope forcefully in the book, that this is terrain upon which... No one should trod. We should not invite a world or enter a world, and we're getting nearer and nearer into this world where election denialism is a tactic. It can't be a tactic, okay? If you have a specific grievance that you can prove in court and you can establish something went wrong in an election and you believe your candidate's rights were therefore infringed, take that to court and adjudicate it. And there are methods and long history in this country of close elections being handled precisely that way. Blanket denialism is fundamentally different. I'm unhappy because I lost, therefore the election must be a scandal, must be a crime. If you believe that, and you believe that only your side is going to invest in that kind of energy, negative, destructive energy, and the other political party, whatever it might be, won't be enticed by that. If you succeed, you're kidding yourself. And... You are participating in the intentional dismantling of our constitutional republic. Just needs to
4: succeed once for somebody else to adopt it. Just like the NFL team that finally goes twelve and four, the other coaches are going to use that method. Exactly,
2: and there are those on the Republican side who are advocating for and trying to get clarification and new legislation for the Electoral Count Act, arguing this exact same principle. Hey, Republicans. Do you want Kamala Harris to decide the next presidential election? No, you don't. Therefore, we should establish clear-cut rules about what objections are legitimate, what legitimizes them in terms of a a number of House members and Senate members to say, yes, there's actually probative reason to believe there was something wrong with that election, and we need to further investigate it. Clarifying those rules clarifies it for everyone. And one other thing about rules in the 2020 election— There were 400 lawsuits filed before Election Day 2020, and they were all resolved. Republicans won some, Democrats resolved. And why does that number matter? Because it was the most concentrated period of pre-election litigation in our history, which means all the rules were fought over and everyone understood them. So don't come to me two months later and say, oh, this rule ticks me off. You knew what it was and everyone abided by it, period, end of story. So you'd
4: argue there should be some limit on these sore loser lawsuits, these lo- lawsuits that generate from people who knew the rules of the game already. Those, there were a bunch of sore loser lawsuits in
5: 2020. There were, and even more just sore loserism not brought to lawsuits. What we're seeing from election deniers now is they say they're going to bring lawsuits, they say there's going to be evidence and it's going to be mind-blowing, and then they never actually produce it because just like the... Um, you know, the charlatan preacher who says the end of the world is coming, you know, get your things ready, and then that date comes and goes. They come up with a new date. You know, this is a this is a big grift, so we're, we're seeing that quite a bit, but um, Major's exactly right. We had more clarification of the rules in 2020 than ever before. Every aspect of the rules that are being complained about now were known about before the election, and, you know, I— I, um, I understand th- these challenges, right? Some of them
4: are arguing the rules weren't followed that were agreed upon, that there's this claim that, you know— They didn't. Pennsylvania didn't follow the rules that we thought we had. Is there some component of legitimacy
5: to these challenges? (laughs) Absolutely not. I mean, the rules were followed. First of all, everything is done transparently. Election officials adopt really an aggressive transparency in how they do things. They want poll watchers. They want people watching them. You know, for instance, one of the claims that's made is the poll watchers were not allowed in any of these um, vote counting areas. The fact is, they were allowed in all of them. I think we all remember the picture in Detroit of the rioters outside the vote counting banging on the windows and the doors saying, we, you got to have, let observers in. There were 200 observers inside on the other side of that door at that moment, half of them Republican observers, half of them Democratic observers. So the rules were absolutely followed. If they weren't, they had an opportunity for about five or six weeks before the December 14th Electoral College um, certification to bring challenges, they failed every time they brought them, and now they're litigating only in the court of um, uh, social media because the lawyers are finding themselves perhaps subject to sanctions for bringing frivolous claims.
2: And ironically, the great verifiers of what David and I have written are the members of the U.S. House who are Republicans and the members of state legislatures who are Republicans, all of whom hold their seats without any controversy whatsoever all of whom, let me stipulate, elected on the ballots, handled the very same way as the presidential election. So, if they are valid members of their state legislature or the United States Congress, what confers that validity? The election procedures underneath their election. Hello? What prima facie evidence that it was a legit election? Because they accept their legitimacy. How do they accept it? On what basis? The election that was conducted,
4: period. Yeah, it was those members of Congress in those states challenging their own states' results. You know, Arizona's delegation took up the cause of challenging Arizona. Pennsylvania Republicans took up the cause. It wasn't even like they were challenging other states.
2: Yes. Yeah.
4: I, the Electoral Count Act is interesting to me for a couple of reasons. It it codifies this idea. We kind of hope people understood that the vice president has nothing but a ministerial role. That we want more people to have to object. If we're going to challenge and debate a state's results after the break, I want to talk about that, but also what other real solutions might be there, what the trajectory is and how we can change the trajectory. But for now, let's take a break. We're with David Becker and Major Garrett on Major's podcast, the Takeout (laughs) podcast. I'm Scott McFarland filling in this week. and Thank you for joining us.
3: Figure Lending, LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org.
1: From CBS News, this is The Takeout
3: with Major Garrett.
4: Back on The Takeout Podcast, I'm Scott McFarland, CBS News congressional correspondent sitting in for Major, who's our guest this week, along with David Becker, authors of the new book, The Big Truth, which is a beautiful red cover which has got to be a metaphor for the red alert that's going on in the American government and American politics.
2: Scott, right? by the way, thank you. You're doing a baffo job. Well, well done. Thank you. Let's talk more about that. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's go into detail about that. I,
4: let's talk about the solution that came up in Congress earlier this week. The Senate talked about the Electoral Count Act.
2: Major, explain what that is and what that does. So it updates a piece of legislation drafted after the 1876 election. We, in The book, helpfully, I hope, detail close elections in our country's history. 1800, 1824, 1876, 1960, 2000. And the Electoral Count Act only applies to two elections. 1876, oh, we had a very close election there. I had to have a commission to establish it. We want to clarify the, the methods to do that. And then 2020, where... There was this invented, completely manufactured, fraudulent legal theory that the Vice President of the United States, Mike Pence, could systematically change the results of the election by interceding in the certification and the acceptance of electoral counts sent to the Congress from the states. And he can't. And this clarifies not only that, makes it absolutely clear, no Vice President has that authority, and the methods by which, if Congress decides to challenge Results from, an under, from a state that has certified its electoral count. What is the threshold and what's the procedure to do it? Clarifies all of that. So there's no confusion whatsoever. And it has bipartisan support in the Senate. The legislation has already passed the House. And there is some optimism that it will either pass before the midterms or in the lame duck session thereafter. Feels like a way of treating the symptoms of the problem, though. You're treating
4: a, a like taking a Tylenol when you need back surgery.
5: Well, I think um, th- there's we're going to need a variety of different um, uh, remedies here to fix the problems that we've seen come over the last two years. And this is an important one. I think, as Major said, um, the Electoral Count Act uh, came after a, a truly disputed election where there was massive disenfranchisement post-Reconstruction or during Reconstruction in some of the places in the Deep South. Um, we really didn't know who won. Um, we didn't have the kind of transparency... And redundancies that we have now in Not elections, even close. yeah. It's um, <laughs> and and so what what the Electoral Count Act at that time in 1887 tried to do was to enshrine a process by which the constitutional requirements of, of the transfer of power for the presidency would be included.
4: This is coming out of the Rutherford
5: B. Hayes, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, elections. Well, yes. Exactly. we all enjoyed watching. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the um, so in. There have been objections before. They've never been endorsed by the uh, losing presidential candidate. Uh, we have famously seen vice presidents who were actual losing candidates in presidential races preside over the joint session in, uh, of an election in which they lost. Richard Nixon in 1961 had a, had a very passionate speech about that. Al Gore did the same in, in 2001. Um, it's really important to note, the Electoral Count e- Act, even as it exists, does not give the vice president a cheat code in the Constitution to anoint a president that he or she would like. It's not true for Vice President Pence. It's not true for Vice President Harris. Um, but it does create some guardrails that make clear that the joint session is ceremonial and that the vice president's role is ceremonial. I, I, I kind of compare it to the role of the MC at the oscars um you're you're the host of the counting we already know who won we already know what the count is now the electoral count act reform that's been proposed in two two separate versions in each chamber slightly different but they largely just further clarify that the vice president's role is ceremonial and then importantly they both also raise to different levels the threshold for objection the number of Congress people that would need to object for them to have to retire and debate that. Um, While the the levels are somewhat different, what they both do is they prevent a handful of Congress people from hijacking the process and requires there to be a fairly large movement of Congress people in order to... Let me interject, but at this moment,
4: it's not beyond the realm of possibility that the House Republican Conference can find 10 or 30 members to object, even if more than... One is needed. These,
2: these guardrails aren't going sure.
4: significantly but higher. But look, as,
2: as a reaction to the 2020 election, this is helpful and important because it is a place in which a divided Congress over a divisive issue is coming together to clarify the new rules and do so on a bipartisan basis. For the nation, that is very important. It's a value statement. It's a value statement. And because it was... As the president said, and many others have said before him, the citadel of democracy that was attacked, that was desecrated on January 6th, 2021, Congress has to step in and offer a response to that. Congress cannot look at that and say, well, we really can't figure out what we think. No, you have to figure out what you think and clarify that which you can clarify. And I think that's the value of the Electoral Count Act.
5: And if I can, I mean, guardrails don't prevent you from going off the road. I mean, they're very good. They're very necessary, but we still have to drive the car, and that's going to require much more active citizenship, much more truth coming from members of the former president's party. But we have models for that. We have election officials in the states, many of them Republican, who have stood at great personal um, toll to themselves for truth. Uh, members of Congress have done the same. Um, hopefully, that will that will continue, and these guardrails will give them some tools. To, um, to kind of allow us all to step back from the, from the cliff.
4: November 8th, election night, what are you watching most closely?
2: Well, certainly turnout, and there is every sense that turnout in this midterm election will also be high. Let's remind ourselves the midterm turnout in 2018 was the highest in 100 years. Whatever the net involvement of former President Trump in our politics is, And lots of books will be written about it. And on this issue, it is undeniably negative and destructive. On this issue, he does drive turnout. And lots of people will be invested in this midterm election because they previously voted in 2018 and 2020. And one of the best predictors of voting behavior is, did you vote in the previous two elections? And lots of Americans did. Millions did. So high turnout. How close will things be in Georgia? How close will things be in Arizona. Those are the two states I'm most keeping close eye on because I think those elections are going to be very close and there is election denialism on the ballot in Arizona. Many election deniers lost in the Republican primaries in Georgia. What will be the effect of that and will denialism on election night 2022 win or lose? Because I think this country is invested in election denialism losing so we can get back to all the other fundamentals that this country needs to grapple with. The book is called The Big Truth Upholding Democracy
4: in the Age of the Big Lie. I would ask you where you can buy it. It's probably easier to ask where you can't buy it at this point. (laughs) Everywhere. Great work by Major Garrett and David Becker. We appreciate your listening to the Takeout Podcast. Rest assured if you're listening on the radio on Sirius XM 124. Major's back in the host chair here next week. I'm Scott McFarland, congressional correspondent for CBS News. Honored to fill in for you this week. For those watching on CBS News Streaming, or if you want to download the podcast, bonus round is coming up next. We thank you for listening.
6: Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career.
0: Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at Squeezed.com.
1: From CBS News, this is The Takeout
4: with Major Garrett. Thanks for downloading the podcast. Make sure you do so every week. Or for those of you watching on CBS News streaming, thanks for being here. Okay, It's bonus round time with Major Garrett and David Becker. All right, Major, you know the questions better than I do. What's the most pivotal book or the one that is life-changing for you?
2: So we did this once before when I had my book, Mr. Trump's Wild Ride, on the show, but I will do them uh, in summary very quickly. The most important movie in my life, the best movie ever made, Network. Why? Because it predicted the future. Lots of movies try, only one achieve that, Network. If you haven't seen it, watch it. Most important book in my life, East of Eden by John Steinbeck. Um, it's, I believe, the greatest novel in American literature. Um... I've read it three times, the only book I've ever even been tempted to read three times, and I learned something from it each and every time. And my favorite genre of music, jazz. Uh, not, not smooth s- jazz. Silky, <laughs> smooth, no. faux no. jazz. That would have been the but, wrong answer. But but, but yes, grittier, um, John Coltrane, Miles Davis. Uh, the closest I will get to smooth jazz, though it's not in that category at all, is Stan it Getz, but Brubeck, everyone in that 40s, 50s, and 60s era of jazz. That's real jazz. That's that real counts. jazz.
5: Yeah. That's West Coast jazz.
4: Same question to you.
5: Um, you can't pick your own book. I, uh, That's part of the rules. Obviously, of this is down. a very important book, okay. um, but uh, probably the uh, most relevant book I've ever read, the most important book, was The Plot Against America by Philip Roth. Um, I read it when it first came out in around 2007, 2008, and then uh, in the about two or three years ago I read it again and somehow he wrote a book that was more relevant years after he had died um, After and after he had written it um, and it's about a uh, for those of you who haven't read it it's about a, a, a it's historical fiction about if Charles Lindbergh had won the presidency in 1940 um, seen through the eyes of the uh, Newark family which he uh, often uses as his alter egos in these um, in his books um, my favorite movie is uh is Blazing Saddles, I'll say. Um, uh, if um, I, I say that tongue-in-cheek, and it really is one of my favorite movies, and it's hilarious, but I challenge you to find a better movie about why racism is stupid than blazing saddles blazing saddles is the best movie that demonstrates how racism is just idiotic it's like a high watermark for mel brooks He had a lot of high watermarks yeah, yeah i'm a big mel brooks fan um now this will sound like a broken record no pun intended but but major and i both share a love of jazz and um uh i uh i very much like bebop miles davis john coltrane Um, and, uh, I, I, there was a period of time in my younger years when I played trumpet very mediocrely and played a little bit, but, um, mainly I'm a great appreciator of the music. What movie show or song best represents
4: Washington DC or politics you know, a lot of people are fans of the things that made mainstream media, mm-hmm. the West Wing,
2: mm-hmm.
4: uh, American President. What's the best representation you've ever seen?
2: So I'm, I'm a big fan of West Wing in its early years. Um, I think there's a meditation on the state of the presidency and its interactions with the media and Congress pretty well drawn. Um, and I love the movie Lincoln. I love the movie Lincoln because unlike so many modern adaptations or portrayals of political machinations, Lincoln unabashedly says politics is the hero. Politics is the hero of that movie. Not Lincoln. Politics. How did you get votes for this thing that was so important? Mm -hmm. Were the methods necessarily pleasing? No. Were they essential to achieve a historic and beneficial result? Absolutely. And politics and the nastiness or the underbelly of it is always are historically treated as an evil, as a net evil. It is not, ladies and gentlemen. And Lincoln is one of the few movies of the modern era that takes that idea seriously and drives the point home. I think that's right. A fantastic movie. It was a good choice.
4: Major Garrett, David Becker. Next week on the Takeout Podcast, we raise the possibility David plays soft jazz yacht rock on his trumpet. No. For now. (laughs) By the book, The Big Truth, (laughs) Upholding Democracy... In the age of the big lie, An honor to sit in this week for Major Garrett. I'm Scott McFarland. Thanks for watching and thanks for downloading the podcast.
1: The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanan. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News.
3: the problem this dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare they were isolated for weeks berated operated on and then were ranked by a panel of judges follow the big flop on the wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts
4: stephen colbert here to tell you about the late show pod show which is the podcast of the late show with my producer becca becca what's what's up
6: So The Late Show Pod Show is everything you love about The Late Show on a podcast. I want to know about you.
4: People see everybody in an ad talks about the thing they're trying to sell. I'd like to know about you, the person behind creating the podcast.
6: I'm having a really good day. Barry baked
5: some bread, and my friend Kara got me some chicken salad. It's a really nice day in the office today.
4: Listen to The Late Show Pod Show with Stephen Colbert wherever you get your podcasts.